Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And for those who don't know, you can not only listen to the episodes on the podcast platforms, but also on the website, onstrategyshowcase.com. And the advantage of uh, listening on the website is that you can also uh, see the creative work as it's posted there for, for all of the episodes. And you can also leave a question or a comment if you want to do that. Uh, today, I talk with uh, Toby Duncan. He's head of planning at Uncommon London. And uh, we recorded this episode a, f- a few months ago. It just took a while to get it posted here. But we talk about the launch of the new B&Q campaign. B&Q is the leading hardware store in the UK, not unlike Home Depot is here in the US. Uncommon's new brand platform for B&Q is Build a Life. It's the idea that you don't just buy a life, in other words, pay someone else to do it for you, uh, but you can build one yourself. It's the whole idea of encouraging increased use of DIY among homeowners. It's the belief that anybody can change their home to make it better and to make life better. Now, here in the US, Home Depot had a similar sort of platform for years and it evolved over time. We all remember you can do it we can help. But what's sort of unique about Uncommon's work is really the execution of that idea, particularly in film, uh, by focusing in on how doing it ourselves can make us feel, not practically, but emotionally. It makes it all seem more possible and more important. And by the way, uh, I love the line that closes the film. It is, what a day it was, the day you found out you can do it. So here's my talk with Toby, and here's the lunch spot. Enjoy. If walls could talk, what are you doing? What would they say? The wonderful decor on the bedroom walls, darling. They tell you. An out-of-focus photo on the mantle. Me and my mum in the mirror. Can warm this place up. That fairy tales come in tins. And it really doesn't matter what you mend. These walls would say, change isn't scary when you're holding a hammer. And with a scuff and a splinter, they remind you, you don't buy a life. You build one. What a day it was, the day you found out you can do it. Good afternoon, Toby. Thank you for joining from Uncommon London, my, my second show from Uncommon. Thanks. Good to be here. And, uh, you know, you originally, I reached out to you originally um, trying to, because I love the ITV work, and you were uh, kind enough to connect me uh, with Lucy. So for those who would like to hear the ITV episode, which is a, the, the work was phenomenal. Um, you can uh, you can also listen to that show. But today we're talking about uh, B and Q, which is uh, what we call in the states. Uh, you know, it's the the hardware store. I don't know where it sits, Toby. Is it is it uh, is it the leader, or how would you describe where it sits competitively? Yeah, it's the market leader. Um, I think the thing that's been going on though is that there are more and more brands doing DIY these days. So how you define a leader is maybe a bit more in, in flux than it's been before. 
So BQ, there's home base and wicks, which we call those the sheds. So they're all ginormous warehouses with everything you need under one roof. Um, and then there's more people trying to chip away at this. So Amazon, you mentioned, um, eBay, even IKEA kind of plays a little bit in those spaces. And then we're seeing this kind of uh, emerging class of really aggressive online players who typically just take one aspect of DIY or home improvement, say plants or radiators or something like that. And that's their focus. And they focus on kind of delivering, delivering that direct to consumer. How are Homebase and Wix competing against uh, B&Q? Like, how are they positioned? Homebase uh, positioning is all about home beautification. So making your home beautiful, um, that's kind of their territory. Wix is more about being efficient and fast, so getting these DIY tasks done very quickly and, and cheaply. Take us back to the work. The work just launched for this campaign. It's gotten rave reviews. Uh, it, um, it's smart. It's simple. And uh, I'm just curious where it all started from. Tell us, tell us, uh, tell us about the the first connection, the first time you were involved. Was it a pitch or was it just a conversation? Yeah, yeah no, we pitched for the business um, end of last year, so November of last year. They kind of reached out to us and a few other agencies at this kind of moment of, of big change for them. They had a CEO who was about two years um, in that position, a CMO who was about you know between around about nine months of that stage in a new position. And they both kind of agreed that the brand needed to get its mojo back. So they were really eager to kind of um, uh, re-clarify what the brand should stand for in, in culture and, and then for called pitch. And so what was, what was their concern based upon or based on? Um, oh, I think it's probably a mix of things. I think they had definitely seen what they were calling the brand's vitals decline, so things like awareness and consideration and, and some of the other metrics that they measure. I think they also intuitively knew the value of brand and had realised that, that B&Q had a really fond place in hearts and minds in this country, but they hadn't invested in it for, for a number of years. So I think it was this pivotal moment that they recognised that this brand needed to kind of reassert itself in, in the UK. So how would you describe the way B&Q has been positioned in the past? Look, I think the two founders, and you, you see this really often, had a really clear sense of, of what the brand needed to be. And there's this amazing story about um, the two guys who started it, which, you know, it was, I said 50 years, it's about 51 years ago that they started. Um, at that time, a, you know, a regular person living in a regular house couldn't go out and buy DIY equipment. You know, the, the, the only people who could buy that stuff were tradespeople and they would buy it through trades channels. So the idea that you open a store and you start selling this stuff direct to the public was quite a radical idea at the time. And not long after that, the tagline, which they've still got today, you can do it, kind of emerged. And, and I think, you know, 50 years ago, the brand was really clear on what it believed, which was that everyone has a capacity for, for home improvement and everything that can offer a life. I just think over time, um, they didn't feel the need to kind of uh, as clearly state that. And, and maybe kind of it got a bit buried alongside the price points and the offers and everything else that businesses of this size need to worry about. So what was the, what was the client brief? Um, we had a brilliant one-line brief from the CEO, which was help B&Q get its mojo back. <laughs> I love it. So, so, it's, it's, so it's, gene it's generic. It's a generic statement. It's not very specific, but it's obviously a cry for help. Well, there's a lot built into it, I, I think. I think the operative word is back. You know, I think there was a sense that B&Q was a category leader, that people used to talk about it fondly, that people see this on their, their kind of sub, see the business in their suburbs, but they don't really have the same connection with it. You know, the CMO, Paddy, um, was much clearer on, on what that meant from a metric point of view. So he had kind of seen all the kind of vitals in decline and, and, and knew that this was more than just a, a, a vanity brief, that this was actually kind of really harming them at the moment, that a, a long history of only investing in retail and price point advertising 
had meant that they had, you know, well and truly lost their mojo and that it was hurting their bottom line. And so who would you think that they were losing share to? Um, a mixture of people. I think um, Amazon has, has really been the biggest competitor. Those two um, sheds I was talking about before, Homebase and Wix, you know, in any given year, one of them kind of seems to beat the other and, and chip a little bit away at the share. I think there's just more and more people trying to um, take a little bit of this segment. So Amazon, like I said, is a really big chunk. But then these specialist players and these local suppliers are, are all kind of taking a, a small percentage that really adds up to something quite significant. So tell us about tell us about the um, what you interpreted as being the challenge. You, you get you get this you get this brief get get the brand's mojo back. Uh, what do you guys then do specifically from a planning perspective to well, we try to understand that. what the mojo issue is? Yeah, well, we interpret that as the brand doesn't have a clear positioning internally or or out, and so that's kind of the exam question of the pitch. Um, you know, I think at Uncommon we always talk about kind of brand strategy and brand positioning in a specific way, which is we rarely just look at what makes this kind of brand different or incrementally better than its competitors and always try and push through and, and articulate what the brand's role in culture more broadly might be. And that kind of became our navigation point and, and really was, was the thing we went in search of during the pitch process. And so uh, tell me specifically what you guys did because, you know, planner to planners here. So it's like, g- give me some granular stuff that you guys did. What, 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 uh, as a planning group, what did you do? Did you go? Did yeah. you guys spend time in in homes? Did you? Because this was this is pre pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the first thing we needed was a bit of a hypothesis as to what DIY and home improvement could mean, and and I think you know we we did that thing that every kind of plan does at the beginning of the um, process, which is just look for a hypothesis that might start to ground all that stuff that you end up doing in a pitch, like speaking to consumers and so on. Um, for me, I found the most illuminating thing. Um, reading about english homes um so i'm not from england um but there's a lot of kind of great writing on on english homes both historically but also from an ethnographic point of view and it was really interesting to kind of spend some time with these writers who kind of unlocked the power of home and we contrasted that with the advertising of the category and there just seemed to be this massive disconnect we were talking about some of the most emotional subject matter that you could possibly get your hands on in people's homes then we were looking at the category advertising and saying when it came to improving those homes or fixing things up at those homes, the category really hadn't found the same emotional vocabulary. The thing that struck me really early on, actually, was, um, you know, again, doing the thing that everyone would do during a pitch, a bit of a competitive review, is the way the competitors would talk about DIY and home improvement and this whole subject matter. For the most part, it was a category of chores. So you would see advertising that played back this sense that, you know, your, your homes are against you and conspiring against you and they're falling down around you and you <laughs> fix them up kind of quickly and promptly. And I just had a real beef, I suppose, with, with the inference behind that, which is that people's homes are inadequate or kind of conspiring against them. So I think there was this real contrast with the way, you know, so many kind of smart minds had talked about English homes and what they meant. And then the categories advertising and the categories view of home and that disconnect started to kind of prize open what we saw was a really interesting opportunity here, which was start to at least kind of connect with the power of home. Um, you know, and I can go a bit further as to what we did, because I think what became really clear is that homes are powerful, but it's not enough for being cute to celebrate homes because they don't sell homes. Um, they have a very specific relationship with homes. And we needed to kind of work out how DIY could contribute or be a part of that romantic story around homes. And that's really what we kind of were scratching at early on in the process here. Yeah, I love it. I love it. You know, it's it's funny that you mentioned the uh, the fact that 
that there's much written about uh, British homes. There's there's this book was was actually a TV series, and I totally agree with you. It's it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal in terms of the um, the attention that is paid to issues of of sociology, uh, of of uh, of lifestyle, and of institution in the UK. I wish it was done more here in the US, but it's not. I mean, for example, there was a TV series back in, you, you may be familiar with this from your work, but it was called uh, Sign of the Times, Signs of the Times. And it was a kind of a documentary series that was done on British television. It was done by the BBC. And it, the, what came out of that was a book called Sign of the Times. And it was basically a look at uh, personal taste uh, in, in a, a British uh, uh, personal taste in the home. And it's phenomenal. I mean, it's really fantastic. I have it here in my hand. And for people who want to check it out, I think it's just titled Sign of the Times. It's not very clear here. But it says Signs of the Times, or Signs of the Times, is a book about personal taste in the British home based on the BBC television series that surveys contemporary perceptions of good and bad taste and explores the extraordinary range of emotions that lie behind our household choices. And I, and I, I wanted to ask you about this because I'm fascinated because, you know, as planners, we, many of us love to uh, get inside the home and sort of understand how people reacted to it. Were you able to do any of that? And was there well, any sort of observations that came out of it? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I'll reference another book, um, Kate Fox's Watching the English. And, and I haven't read Sign of the Times, but it sounds brilliant. But, you know, I don't know what you found in, in your practice, folks, but I find you can gain so much from these kind of brilliant minds who, who spent often a career or a decade thinking about these subjects that we are trying to get up to speed within a week or so. Yeah. So we don't really do consumer groups, but, you know, we kind of had this, this kind of hypothesis and this emerging thought before we even stepped into homes. Um, but we did, yeah, we did do um, some consumer research as well. You know, I think we had to make a call early on in what kind of shape um, we were going to take there. We ended up saying that we don't want to do groups. And that's particularly because we wanted just a lot of time with people. I think the thing with DIY and home improvement is there's a lot of stuff that I expected people to replay to us as soon as we started talking about this subject matter. Um, and that's partly because it's true, partly because I just think we're kind of conditioned to think about DIY and home improvement in a specific way, which is if you ask people why they might have chosen to do a project themselves rather than got someone in, you'll quickly um, get two answers. The first is that it's cheaper, um, which is true. And the other is that there's a sense of achievement um, or accomplishment when you do it yourself. And it doesn't matter if it's kind of imperfect. You did it yourself. And we knew we were going to hear those answers early on. And we wanted to scratch beyond that to kind of get to something a little bit more powerful. Like I said, we knew homes were powerful, but we didn't understand why DIY and home improvement could lay claim to that. So rather than do a focus group or get lots of people in a different space, we went and spent an hour in people's homes. We thought like an hour would allow us enough time to get the really obvious stuff out of the way. Um, People saying they did it themselves because they didn't have any money at the time and so on. And just to kind of sit in that conversation a little bit longer and, and get... Um, beyond it and actually those interviews ended up being kind of incredibly instrumental and powerful in our uh, you know journey and coming up with with the brand strategy Um, because what we kind of found is you know when you get people talking about the stuff that they've done at home these DIY projects or home improvement more often than not that they're not talking about what they were trying to fix or what was wrong with the house at the time they were talking about something that they wanted to change or create in their family life um, so I remember speaking to a family and, and their kids have just gone off to uni 
And they, their project that they had just completed was putting a big patio outside the back of their house. And the reason why they had done that wasn't because the old patio was broken and wasn't simply because the neighbours had done it and they wanted to kind of keep up with that appearance. It was actually this really lovely thing, which was um, the reason why they wanted a patio is because they had kind of recognised that their daughter's friends were all six foot four and they were like, they don't fit in the house. And if we don't have a patio, then we're never going to see our kids again because they're never going to be able to bring their friends around. And it was interesting. That family would also talk about, you know, 10 years earlier when they had let their teenage daughters kind of paint their rooms like a horrendous black or horrendous purple. Again, it wasn't about fixing up the paint in the room at the time. It was about kind of signalling to them that they're adults, that they're kind of entering this new chapter, that they're kind of owners of this house as well. And it was those stories and, and those kind of interactions and kind of spending a little bit more time with people and really letting them just kind of talk and talk about these projects that kind of revealed that actually home improvement is never about fixing stuff. It's, it's always about kind of creating things and changing things. And we thought that was kind of incredibly powerful. And that's actually where the strategy ended up landing. I love that. That actually, because there's, there's a part of this book that I just mentioned, I wanted to read you out a paragraph here that kind of goes at, indirectly sort of to that, to that same idea. And I'll, uh, I'll quote it here. It says, the landmarks in the evolution of an individual's taste are provided by certain life stages, such as marriage, the arrival of children, their later departure, divorce, if it applies, and retirement. Each of these stages provides an opportunity for a reevaluation of one's tastes and adjustments generally follow. That's kind of interesting that that it kind of leads to the idea of life. And it's true, life stage, whether you're a single person in an apartment trying to, and if, if it's a man or a woman, uh, your, your, your tastes dramatically change as you, as you connect with your partner, as you go through various life stages. Um, I, love, I love that idea of life stage dictating change uh, in, in what you want to surround yourself, yourself with. Yeah, completely. And actually we did, so once we started to kind of recognise this kind of shift from talking about DIY um, as this thing that fixes things to the stuff that brings about change, um, we did get really seduced with the big moments, which are, as you just kind of mentioned, these big life stages where you you um, tend to kind of mark a moment of change. But actually we also kind of saw it happening on a much smaller level, actually. I remember speaking to this one woman who, who was in her early 20s, had just moved into her own flat, so had taken out a mortgage, and she was talking about painting the flat. And you could see in painting the flat, her big, the, the kind of reason why she did that wasn't simply just to change the colour of the walls. And in fact, she kind of admitted that the walls hadn't really changed at all. It's because in her mind, the idea of having a mortgage was petrifying. It was super, super scary. It was this kind of crazy adult lifelong commitment. But she also knew that painting your own apartment was this adult step. And in, in doing that, if she could paint her apartment, well, then she could start to see herself as an adult. Yes. And, you know, we just love this kind of sense of these like, little things that we do around the house are often about bringing around this kind of change that we, we kind of desire in our life. So it definitely happens at these big iconic moments, but it also happens at the kind of far smaller levels as well. We just thought that was kind of a really kind of powerful insight and something we hadn't really seen seen before. So at, at the end of the at the end of the planning work, when you go in and you do the interviews and you edit that footage down, and, and you've shared a little bit of it with me, um, what do you then what do you then report back to creative? I mean, in, in simple in in like in a simple terms or a simple sentence, you go back to the creative department and and what's your briefing to them? So we're lucky in that we have a really kind of small studio where we're kind of between, you know, around 60 people. I think it is at the moment. It's about the time that we're pitching as well. Um, and so these, you know, the process and the planning process is one, moving really quickly, but also happening kind of across the table from the people who are going to be working on this and 
And so you, I, I think the brand idea kind of crystallized in one meeting where we were just kind of working through our thoughts and things that we'd learned along the journey, really. And I think in that meeting, we arrived at the expression build a life, um, which has ended up being a piece of language that entered the campaign and it's kind of become our brand idea and our holding thought. So I think, yeah, our process, so it's not a particularly neat answer for the podcast, but our process is pretty messy and, and collaborative. And I remember the meeting pretty distinctly, but it wasn't labelled a creative briefing per se. It's, it's just one of those meetings that you have about five days into the into the pitch, knowing that you need to get into kind of creative work quite quickly. And we kind of shared all the stuff that I've kind of talked to you a little bit about, our issues with the category, our aspirations for the brand to mean something bigger. And then just this kind of insight that we thought was super interesting around this sense of self-authorship that comes from DIY, this sense of the fact that you're never fixing something, you're creating something and changing something. And, you know, we, we kind of had the expression build a life in that meeting, which, which anchored everything from here on in. So what, what is meant by build a life? What do you want it to mean? I think by build a life, look, it's, it, it, it's a useful piece of language for our internal processes. It, it turns up occasionally as kind of an evocative line that might, you know, ideally, if, if we're so lucky, get people thinking. What it primarily means when we talk about internally as our kind of um, focal point for being you is this sense that um, home improvement isn't around fixing things, it's around creating things. That, you know, the, the stuff we do at our home creates um, change at home. And so, therefore, it's this kind of powerful tool for helping us create the lives that we want and aspire to. Tell us about once you had you had had that sort of kickoff creative, uh, like kickoff creative moment. Uh, tell us about some of the ideas that came back to you. We know where you ended up, but were there versions that you can share with us that, at the time, seemed right, but ultimately didn't uh, make it to the uh, to the client. Well, I think the first thing we do when we start to have a, a brand idea, and particularly when it only exists as a strategic line or a strategic idea at this stage, is just to try and imbue it with some meaning. So we just run it in lots of different ways. So starting to write into it, manifesto is mood, attitude, reference, and all that kind of stuff. So we spend our first um, you know, little bit of time just trying to expand the idea and get really concrete on, on what it means and how we want it to feel and how we want it to visually turn up. And we, we, we built that out really early on and started to kind of capture some language and a point of view and, and some reference and some feelings that we, we were really excited by. And in the end, we kind of couldn't really see another, you know, whether this is, is our kind of lack of imagination or, or kind of a lack of time or whatever it might be. But when it came to the pitch, we really only had the one brand idea for being q which was all around build a life, and that was, you know, quite singular. Um, we did have a few ways that it could be brought to life. Um, you know, it's hard to now say whether they were distinctly different campaigns. Sometimes they could have been imagined as very distinct campaigns. I think in the pitch we presented them as iterations that might run year on year. Um, but I think the point was that we had a really singular view on what the brand could be. And we weren't just talking the pitch around what it should turn up in, in advertising. We are talking about how it should turn up in store, how it should turn up in your interactions with staff, what it might mean internally how we might launch it within the B&Q business. Um, and so I think we had lots of stuff on the table and lots of kind of executions, um, plenty of which have proven to be wildly incorrect and, and not useful and some that we're kind of... <laughs> um, but, you know, I think what we're really trying to do in that, if the question is kind of, um, can we get the mojo back? I think it was about painting the world as to what that mojo should be and should look like and should feel like. So I think lots of the work was really just to, to help us kind of bring the world to life and a, a new vision for this brand, really. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think it's uh, the, there's definitely an energy to this, and and I think it, in terms of comms, you guys picked out of home. I think as your primary uh, uh, channel. Why uh, why that in a pandemic? I'm curious. Yeah, so that we the, the, we have just launched. Um, you know, and actually the the shape of the launch had to change. We were going to launch um, pre pandemic, and and you know, I'm sure everyone's been through their own kind of. Uh, processes with clients and, and everything, and that's changed. Um, but when we moved our launch, it actually forced a bit of a rethink, um, and it was actually a new brief. So we did have a, a, a launch campaign ready to go that we then had to re kind of calibrate. Tell us about uh, this this great uh, um, spot that you guys produced. Mm. Tell us what went into developing that, and, and was that happening? Was that developed pre pandemic? So um, it. The execution was, and we we said early on that we had this kind of production idea that we were kind of really enamored in, partly because the brand's 50 years old, partly because it's a truly kind of national brand. Um, we we liked the idea of the production maybe having a story to it or an angle to it that would make it of, of a bit more cultural importance than just a regular TV shoot. So we had the idea that um, in telling these, these kind of stories about a brand that helps you build a life, that we wouldn't just go out and film scenarios and scenes that that's um served us that what we'd actually do is go visit a or, or partner with a family in each of the 69 cities in the uk and get them to share their family archives or, or video archives with us and would use those hours of footage as the raw material for the campaign for the next year or 18 months or, or however long we, we might stick with it so um after the pitch we kind of set about kind of creating that library and we had used that library to create the garden spot that I just mentioned. And then it's also been the, the source material for the brand spot that we ended up launching with at the time. Tell me about the significance of the 69 cities. Was that a very deliberate thing? Or why, why did you need to include 69 cities? Um, I think we just wanted something that made the production ambition a little bit more audacious. You know, we, we didn't just want, you know, nice kind of footage. We, we, we also planned to do um, some more stuff with that footage. So, you know, it not just be a resource for the advertising material, but it could also be something of kind of cultural importance if we get it right. So we're looking at how we might kind of package that up and turn it into something that's a bit more like a documentary. Cool. Um, you know, we think if there's one brand that's well positioned to talk about home life and 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 what that means to this country, it's it's being huge. So we thought that you know why not make our production um, a little bit more kind of ambitious than just a TV production so is there is there a lot of paid media behind behind this or in terms of uh digital display ads or and social or is it primarily in a traditional out of home because i mean it's it's everything that i've seen about it has been more in the out of home environment yeah so look we've got two lead channels which is tv and out of home um and there is you know social stuff running alongside that but tv and our home for two reasons really um one they're they're like i said a national brand it's a really efficient way for us to kind of reach everyone the other thing that we were talking about when we were designing this launch moment is the, the importance of body language um that if this is going to feel like a relaunch a, a line in the sand a reassertion of what being q is about and should stand for that it needs to have a proud body language to it so that's why we have longer format tv than than being q has historically run in terms of a 60 that's why we're on 48 sheets and 96 sheets um rather than just six sheets and and you know small print placements we wanted something that had a certain confidence to it and really felt like a brand that was trying to say we've got a, a mojo back i love that so that so that was a conscious decision that that scale uh, projected confidence and confidence bills sense of mojo and 
distinctiveness. Exactly. So is is the or I read it as an orange color. Is that is has that always been a B and Q color? Yeah. So the B yeah B and Q color is famously orange, and and they have a different times in their history kind of shied away from that and they had actually been shying away from it um, for the last couple of years. We just thought it was kind of a brilliant asset. Um, you know, probably should have mentioned this earlier. There were some assets to this brand that we felt were really underutilized, one being the orange and the second being the line, you can do it, which is probably one of the top five kind of recognized end lines in, in this country. Um, and we kind of felt that those lines and assets were really being um, underutilized. You know, they weren't the idea, obviously, but then in our presentation of an idea, they should absolutely be kind of, um, you know, captured, you know, not only because they're super recognisable, but if we're going to be proudly being Q, then we need to kind of connect whatever we're saying today with what people strongly associate with the brand. So it doesn't feel like a complete um, fantasy or, or kind of make up version of what this brand's all about. As I look at, as I look at the line, um, you can do it, which is, which is, uh, is a very familiar line here within, within hardware in the US. And, and it's sort of, it's one that, that and it's a, it's a tone that's been played up for years by Home Depot, and it's a great line. They say you can do it, we can help. Then they changed it to more savings, more doing, mm. and then in 2019 they changed it to how doers get more done, and it kind of tracks this idea of of um, of the economic cycle. And in 2009, we're coming out of the recession, the Great Recession. So now it's about it's about sort of um, higher unemployment. People want to save money, but they still want to do things because doing it yourself is obviously saving money yourself. And then it went to this value message of how doers get more done. So I'm curious with with you guys, were you were you conscious of the recession? Was that on your mind, and was that was that idea of value? Uh, something that you debated needed to be inserted into this message, or was it simply the encouragement of, of, of you can do it? Um, yeah, it's interesting. We were developing all this end of last year, kind of naively, a time when people weren't talking about recession in the same way they are now. So yeah, that's true. That wasn't as big a, um, you know, there this, this seems to be, you know, I hear what you're saying with, with those reference points, which are super interesting. Um, for us, the interest in DIY isn't just correlated to finance and economics and, and this sense of either I'm doing it or I can pay someone to do it. Um, I think the other thing is really attached to how much time people are spending at home. So yes. that seems to be one of the bigger drivers of interest in this category. Um, in terms of our conversations around you can do it, you know, we were really you know, hesitant to get rid of it because it was just so incredibly well known. But we also recognised that no one had really clarified what it meant for many years. It had been this kind of throwaway call to action. Um, so we said you can do it, but the question was, well, what what can you do? And, and you know, I think the answer that people were filling in for themselves is, you know, fix up your home. But like I said right at the beginning, we always said that we need to be clear on what people are doing when they're fixing up their home. You know, what, what's that thing we're trying to say? And and we did say is you can do it about saving money or is you can do it about a sense of satisfaction. And like I said, we kind of pushed beyond that and kind of got to this territory of saying, no, well, you can do it about creating a life. You can kind of create the home life that you want. That is within your personal power and you have the capacity to do it. So having a land on this territory of build a life, it allowed us to, you know, in, in our at least attempt to kind of breathe new life into you can do it and really clarify what it can meant. And, and we're trying to reclaim what that expression means throughout this campaign. The pandemic obviously comes along and uh, kind of screws with everything. Mm. 
But one thing that it does is it centers people in the home and the role of the home in life changes. Are you guys thinking through the implications of that for, uh, for DIY? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm I'm sure everyone working in different agencies and and studios, you, you have a handful of clients that sit on your, your desk. And when COVID hit, there was a real question mark as to um, which ones is going to really challenge and and what um, brands and categories is going to accelerate. I do think everyone's time at home, whether it's us simply just being more familiar with those, you know, or face-to-face, I should say, with the tasks that we've put off for, for a long time, or simply just spending more time at home and imagining kind of new futures there. Um, DIY has absolutely kind of boomed at this time. Um, so being has kind of done particularly well. Um, in terms of what that might mean for the brand in the future, look, I think we're, we're kind of super aware something in this country that people are going to be spending more time at home. Um, therefore, that that kind of just latent interest in the category and DIY is going to be, you know, uh, accelerated and increased. Um, but for us, it just kind of multiplies all the all the challenges that the brand has has historically faced and continues to face. You know, the, the challenges of of kind of um, you know it's uh, traditional competition, but also the Amazons and and people like that. You know, as we as we close out here, tell me tell me um, sort of in retrospect. What did you learn about human behavior that uh, surprised you as you went through this? Because every time I've ever done a project like this where there's a lot of in-home work and you're studying a category, there's always seems to be a surprising thing that either takes you by complete surprise or even just a small little nugget where you're like, shit, that Mm -hmm. is sort of this common thread. Did you you find as a planner that you you or the team learned anything that surprised you? Yeah, something kind of... You know, we touched on a little bit. I think going into this, we expected there to be some sort of macro factor that makes sense of the category. Like, is it um, economics that drives this? Is, is there a certain, you know, economic bracket that, that relies on DIY and uses it? Or is it an age thing or an experience thing? We kind of expected something big like that to kind of cut across and make sense of the DIY improvement or at least maybe reveal an opportunity for the brand. The thing that struck me, though, was just how personal um diy can be and the crazy stuff we attach to these little moments so whether it's putting a painting up on a wall whether it's putting a photo on a mantelpiece whether it's painting a room whether it's letting a kid paint a room putting in a patio or or putting in a new kitchen the way people talk about that at a very individual level and the stuff that they um attach to it and and what they expect their their life to um how they expect their life to change after that happens it's just really quite incredible. Um, and so that was the thing that really struck me is if you just simply, you know, were, were an alien to this planet and you looked at the DIY categories advertised and you would say, God, this is a category that humans hate. They've got absolutely no interest in this. And the only way to be a good brand in this category is to remove the task and make it as simple and easy as possible, um, which is, you know, partly why there's such a big vacuum there for the likes of Amazon to come in and do that because few brands make stuff as painless as, as they can. Right. But if you sit down and you speak to people and you, you get them to talk to you about why they changed the kitchen and what's happened after the kitchen or what it meant to put up a photo of a, of a grandparent in their kid's nursery or what it meant to be the, the day that they kind of put in a chest of drawers or a study desk in their kid's thing, and everything they were trying to say um, to another person or themselves to their action, it's just quite crazy, really. And, and I was just kind of blown away by the, the power of DIY, really. And that, that points to the important thing for all planners 
and for all of us in the industry to to learn a lesson from, which is, and I'm wondering if it's if it was deliberate with you guys, we have to be we have to be super conscious of the question we ask. So obviously, to get to some of these these uh, observations, you had to ask questions in a certain way. Did did you have a way of asking questions? Was there a deliberate way to to provoke? This a, a, a you know a sort of a distinctive or different response when you were having these discussions, these interviews. Yeah, I th- and I think that maybe stems from the way we talk about brands at the studio. We we um, are always you know uh, when we're talking about brands at the studio, we you know Lucy and I talk a lot about brands don't need a position in the category; they need a place in culture. And so it means you know rightly or wrongly when we're kind of doing our our stuff we spend little time looking at you know what makes the brand unique and and better or or bigger than its competitors um and we spend a lot more time just looking at the culture and saying well what could a DIY brand be about what what should it be about and i think that means we we move past a lot of stuff that that you know i certainly in 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 previous lives would have spent a lot more time thinking with or quick kicking around and just trying to get to a much more meatier place for the brand to be a bit more additive in in culture really if that makes sense yeah and, and so uh, you know one of the things that that was very unique about this i mean there is there are many brands that have talked about the home and about uh, memories nostalgia Etc., which is, I think, is a part of your message too. But the one thing that you guys did, and nobody else that I'm aware of has ever done, is you you talk about the truth of of what happens when people live together, and I'm, and I'm talking about the arguments, the tension, because a lot of that spot talks about the things that we all know happen, but they're, but they're not necessarily have been they've not necessarily been fodder for marketing messaging in the past about the fact that. There's shit disagreements between people and families, and they shape the definition of family. It's not always warm and nostalgic. There's tension. There's issues with kids, with each other, et cetera. Was was that was that difficult to sell to the client? The fact that you've incorporated that reality into the spot? No, it wasn't. And I think that's partly because we we tend to be quite upfront with that stuff in our pitches. So you know the style of work that we think works and, and makes the biggest difference tends to incorporate that you know strategically we like brands that kind of tend to play on a friction or a tension or, or or kind of play in an uncomfortable place or say things that people aren't comfortable saying and certainly from a creative point of view the whole creative department plays with a much broader emotional footprint than than maybe other agencies and other creative um, studios would be comfortable playing with and and that's just we we think that is really important to get noticed that there needs to be a bit of friction and heat if you want people to pay attention to the stuff that we're creating. Um, and, and it's super important for us to be forthright with that when we're kind of meeting with clients and, and sharing work because that's not something you can really reveal at the 11th hour because that cause all sorts of disasters. But um, yeah, it's really interesting that you you pick that up. We do try and bake that stuff in to our work. I suppose I suppose that goes back to that discussion that's been brewing in you know, for a number of years in marketing circles and planning circles, which is the importance of distinction versus differentiation, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I think too many clients are looking for differentiation. And God knows I have been in so many meetings where the question is, well, what makes us different than somebody else? They're already saying that. And and that sort of a conversation can lead to mundane, useless uh, marketing. 
where I, I think what you're saying is that distinctiveness, whether it's driven through tensions, uh, whether it's driven through a connection to culture, is more important than differentiation. The fact that you're different isn't enough. You've got to go beyond that. Mm. It's interesting. Distinction and differentiation are often you know, used to frame up conversations around strategy. I think we, our strategy conversations all focus on meaning. Like what, you know, what, what's going to make this brand matter? You know, how can we argue that this brand deserves to exist on this planet? You know, what does it offer culture? Um, when it comes to advertising, I think we're looking for fame. That, that's the kind of word that hangs over the creative process. What's going to get this noticed or talked about? And that's why we might push the emotional footprint of the work a little bit. That's why we might be um, a little bit more agitative in the, you know, the nature of the work. It might be why we, we try and turn our production into a bit more of a, a cultural project in, in going to 69 families. Um, you know, what's, what's that thing that is deserving of, of that, that deserves to be talked about that, that could strike up a conversation? Um, so differentiation and distinction, it, it, maybe we talk a little bit less about when we get to the execution and focus a lot more about what's going to make this famous, what's going to make it worth talking about. Toby Duncan, head of planning, Uncommon London, a great shop, uh, a great studio. I know you guys have a, you think of yourselves as a creative studio, right? Yes. And uh, once again, great talking with somebody from Uncommon London. And uh, I'm excited to see where the, uh, the next phase of B&Q goes. Thank you so much. Such a, such a pleasure if you reach out and, and ask us about this project. It's really appreciate it. Yeah, you're, you're more than welcome. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.